morning, everyone, or maybe afternoon. My name is Jake, and I'm one of the pastors here at WCC, and I'm thrilled to be with you here today. Uh, as these restrictions are starting to be lifted, my heart is just starting to get enlarged by being able to see people and just carry on relationships and in closer proximity with them. Uh, I, I pray that you are doing well and that the Lord has given you peace in this current situation. So uh, I'm excited also that pretty soon, even we have a music here, but pretty soon we're going to be able to sing and lift our voices to praise God together uh, in, in worship. So uh, praise God for that. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we just thank you for your goodness and, and your grace in the life of this body and in uh, the life of your children. So Lord, uh, just direct us as we just continue to work through this season of life. Can help just uh, to build us up in you, Lord, not in things of this world, but in you. And, and Lord, uh, especially as we talk about the tongue, I just pray that um, you can tame my tongue through this message and you can bring yourself glory. In your precious name, amen. All right, uh, we, we are moving along in the book of James. Last week we saw Stephen bring us through just really some difficult passages and verses that really should hit each uh, Christian brother and sister in, in some unique way. And when the Lord saves and gives us new life in him, our entire disposition changes. And we should be compelled not just to do works, but to love others, to want to know God, to pray for others, to, to go out of the way to tell people about Christ. That is the new life in Christ. And today in this section of the letter, James kind of does a, a pivot and discusses the impacts of our, our words and our speech. And I, I can't tell you how many times that I've opened my mouth, probably even today, where I've spoken and then I've just been completely embarrassed about what I've said, like 10 seconds later. And I could go on and on about examples where I've probably inflated reality to make myself look better. I've teared down a person just because of fault I found in them. Um, I've, I've tried to uh, make excuses for my harshness. I find myself doing that quite a bit. And there's times maybe where I've had like a theological difference with somebody. And I use like the most sarcastic language in the world to try to win them over um, I just, like, it kills me. I operate in the flesh way too much. And when I started reading and studying to teach this passage today, I was cut as I usually am when I am in God's word. Hebrews 12, verse 4 says it perfectly like this. It says that the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And the reality of the Spirit just convicting me and my need for repentance daily and how I need to do that is evidence that the Lord is at work in me. Praise God for that. And he will be at work in me for the rest of my life. Because when I want to try my hardest, when I want to train my, my tongue so badly, when I don't want to be short, with my wife and with my kids, and when I don't want to judge and slander others, I know I can never do that on my own. Only through God changing me and molding me can I ever grow in holiness. I'm sure, like, I'm just asking, have you guys ever felt the same? That's kind of a rhetorical question. Have you ever uh, stumbled or caused a person to stumble with your words? 
Or have you ever maybe maligned someone with your words? Uh, I mean, our tongues are the most dangerous weapons that we can ever have. But by God's grace, we have hope and victory over this. So don't beat yourself up or don't hear judgment coming from me. Rather, the gospel is at, our wor- is at work in our lives still. So listen today and, and find hope and, and victory in this. Again, Stephen preached on, on a genuine faith, a, a saving faith, and how that's demonstrated and really matured by deeds and works. And we heard that last week. Now, James attacked that non-salvific faith that didn't produce those visible deeds. And that faith is, is really no faith at all. And then Stephen addressed uh, the Christians who might just need to check the engine, so to speak. They need to uh, start walking in the spirit and cling to Christ and not just acknowledge him and, and then continue to operate in the flesh. So in this next session that we're looking at today, we see that our words are important. I mean, they are a guide for us. They're an instrument that can mature us Or an instrument that can break us down. Our words can build people up or they can destroy. And words are loosely connected to this previous section that discuss works. Because words are also works. And that is where James picks up in this section of scripture discussing the tongue, which is our words, our speech. And these verses are also... uh, they mirror uh, and corroborate what James says earlier in chapter 1 in this letter, but they also mirror and corroborate with Jesus as he was speaking. And we can see in Matthew 12, I'm going to read verses 33 through 37, Jesus talks about um, the judgment you'll receive for your works and your words. And here's the dialogue, I'll read it out, that he's having with the Pharisees who are condemning him for uh, healing people. He says this, Jesus says, Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings good thing out of his good store of treasure, and the evil man brings evil things out of his evil store of treasure. But I tell you that men will give an account on the day of judgment For every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. And James himself doubles down on the words of Christ here when he wrote earlier in chapter 1 describing uh, true religion. It says this, it says, My beloved brothers, understand this, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For a man's anger does not bring about the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and every expression of evil. And humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save your souls. He continues in a couple verses later. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his heart and his religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion before our God and Father is this, to care for the widows and orphans in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Man, these words are tough. And this passage today 
it gets even tougher to hear. One of the things that's unique about expository preaching, which is what we do here, is that it takes the text just for what it is. Sometimes we see a lot of law that comes out and shows us just how we fail so much. That's okay. It's okay to hear because we know what the solution is. It's the gospel. But you know what? The gospel is really not as sweet when it's just cheap grace. And it is. It's just cheap grace if we don't know the cost of that grace. And we just float over the tough stuff. The price that Jesus paid for our salvation and our new life in him is left out. We cannot forget that Christ seeks the sinner and saves them through his work. And there's a big cost in that. So when we look at this text, I hope it's going to do a few things. One, I hope it's going to convict. Two, I hope it's going to point to our insufficiency. Three, it should create a struggle or a tension within our minds. And fourth, it's going to point to Christ as the sufficient one, and we can enjoy the assurance of our salvation, our identity in him, because of his word. Okay, now an intro to the text is this, really, is that what comes out of the mouth is usually an accurate indication of the health of our hearts. I'll say that again, uh, like an intro to this text. What comes out of our mouths is usually an accurate indication of the health of our hearts. And James gives us a good analysis of what our tongue can do and how it operates. So let's jump into the text. In chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, it says this, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. James is warning Christians, especially uh, those who would want to become teachers. He even lumps himself into the group and describes the scrutiny of we who teach. And what he means by a teacher is this. It's someone who has a captive audience in things on the faith and has a regular uh, basis in front of those people. And those people who have that cop- captive audience are, are mostly pastors who their main role is teaching. Back in the New Testament times, the teachers were similar to what maybe a rabbi would be. Someone who is respected and has authority and instructs on matters of life and of faith. They would be looked to for answers. And when we read in the uh, first verse in chapter 3, he's saying just that. That teaching is not something that should be aimed at to do lightly. Here's what it comes down to. An unreliable tongue in a teaching ministry will provide a destructive model for those who are taught. I think that's, really, that's just really important. And I understand the implications of giving this sermon, right? I am inviting stricter judgment on myself as I do that. And I'm sure you guys can all think of a time in your past or even right now where a teacher, maybe it was a high school teacher, maybe it was a college professor, maybe it's a coworker or a boss um, that really did some damage with how he or she instructed others. Those things sit with you. I remember I had a coach that I vividly remember. He was one of those guys that just like screamed continually. 
He tried to make the players just fear them and, and get them to do what he wanted. He used threats. He demeaned the players, and, and he demeaned me a lot on that when they made a mistake. Like, it was brutal. When you have that person in, in a position of authority, sin and pride can just manifest in ways that can just infect groups. And, and church leaders can unfortunately be a prime example of that. And the accountability, that, that stricter judgment, it's in place because of the impact a leader or a teacher can have on a group. I mean, this is why we have uh, really a plurality of elders here at WCC, so we can hold each other accountable for that. And while this specific verse is really about teachers, I believe that James is using this as a test case, really for all people, to understand the tongue. Because we all use the tongue. And none of us can bridle it or tame it. As verse 2 notes, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Folks, nobody is a perfect or a complete man. As we know, and we'll get more in depth later, only Christ has mastered the tongue. Thank God that the righteousness of Jesus is, is reckoned to us by faith, when we repent of our sins and, and believe in him, we can join with Paul in 2 Corinthians as, as, he, as he demonstrates where he says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That, none of that's on our own. When James describes the evil tongue, he's not leaving anybody out. And we even see a transition from the specific to the general population in the following verses. And these verses are really ripe with a lot of imagery. We see that a lot through this letter. Uh, James' letter and those sitting under even probably the, the preaching of James at the time, um, they should have this renewed sense of, of a couple things. Both just really the depth of their own sinfulness as we read through this and the sufficiency of of Jesus to cover that sin. These images, through the Spirit, should take this text and impress it upon our hearts and help mold us to be more like Christ. And I know if you guys have, have read through James recently, um, if you do that at a quick glance, man, he makes a lot of harsh judgments, or he seems to make a lot of harsh judgments, and he seems very rigid on things of the law. Throughout the letter, there's 59 imperatives or commands to do stuff. It's an obvious zeal for the law there. And it might be, as you see that, really hard to see the gospel message in that and, and really only see condemnation. But as James brings indictment to our sin, he also exclaims the saving message of Jesus, which we must highlight. And we will when we get towards the end here. Okay, in, in verses 3 through 5, we see uh, how powerful the tongue is. It says this, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a, a very small rudder wherever the will of the pirate directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Those are our two illustrations that show how the tongue and its power 
are really just completely out of proportion in strength to its size. Both illustrations describe how the tongue gives direction to our lives. A modern day example would probably be like a steering wheel in your car and, and you being the pilot. It's just incredibly powerful. Just think of the power of the tongue. I, I mean, it's, it's scary to, to think, but think how easy it would be for me to speak one sentence here in the pulpit and have it just destroy my reputation and integrity. Just one sentence, if I, if I wanted to, destroy it. It's kind of frightening, and it can happen that quickly. I mean, I was speaking with a friend and reminiscing about how impactful our words are. You can look back and, and see just what effect a text message or an email from years ago still have uh, that effect on maybe your opinion of a person or of, of, of yourself. The impact of how maybe a father speaks words of encouragement to a son or how a father breaks that kid down. Maybe it's that one post on, on social media that, that still labels you. You wish you could take back. Uh, maybe it's that, that blow up you've had because of a miscommunication. I know I've been there many times. And that list can just go on and on. As we get back in, verse 5 says that this, this tongue, although it is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great is a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. I'm sure you guys uh, have seen wildfires. We saw the High Park fire years ago here. Uh, all it takes is one uncontrolled spark and poof, it can destroy a life. Our words can just wreak havoc on others. Verse 6. Ouch. Like this stuff is tough to read. It says this, And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Man. I've heard it said that temptation and, and therefore spiritual compromise often find their easiest access route to the heart via the eyes. And by that same token, sin may find its easiest exit route from our heart via the mouth. And as it stands, apart from Christ, our entire personhood is corrupted by sin. Just listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 2, when we are apart from Christ. It says this, we were dead in the trespasses and sins in one, which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. <clears throat> Apart from Christ, Again, Paul says this in Romans 3. He says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. 
No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of, the venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Jeez, that's tough. <clears throat> the tongue is planted in our bodies and has the potential to ruin everything. Like that white shirt that you spill coffee on, that stain, it just never comes out. It ruins the shirt. It makes you uh, look and, and just feel ridiculous. Like the tongue, if you let it, those bad thoughts, those curses you speak, the slander you put out, the more you take your eyes off of Christ, the bigger that stain becomes. And James' indictment continues in verses 7 and 8. It says this, For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And honestly, I don't think James is using hyperbole here. What a struggle it is to read these words. Like, where is my hope? How can this be? Is this really the fate of my tongue? It's almost like James just like leaves us in handcuffs in this section of scripture and just th tosses us in prison and throws away the key. Like no human can tame the tongue. We can probably all agree with that. Like we can try really, really hard, but we're going to make a lot of mistakes. But there is hope, and we, we're getting there. But before we uh, dissect this and work through the application of these verses, let's finish with a look at verses 9 through 12. And it, it says this. <clears throat> with it, he's speaking of the tongue, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Does, not, uh, does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Okay, James warns us against the danger and the destructiveness of human speech so that his readers will guard their words more carefully. Even as they fail to tame their tongues completely and continue to stumble in many ways. But this letter is written to believers. And believers will struggle with sin. And, and that's evidence with their tongue. But we can have hope in the power of Christ the one who can tame the tongue. And I believe this is reflected in, in what, I, what we call sanctification or our journey to become more like Christ. It's like uh, Pastor Dan says a lot. It's about our direction and not our perfection. Sin will not have that dominion over us because of Christ, because of our direction, because of Christ. This deliverance from the power of sin, secured by the union with Christ, does not eliminate all sin from the heart of the life of the believer. There is still indwelling sin. We as believers are not so conformed to the image of Christ that we are holy and harmless, undefiled and separate from sinners. Sanctifi sanctification 
is concerned precisely with this fact, and it has at its aim the elimination of all sin and complete conformity to the image of God's own Son, to be, to be holy as the Lord is holy. And we do, we need to take that serious. But we know that it will not be realized until that, that corruptible will put on the incorruptible. And the mortal will put on the immortality. An old Scottish theologian, John Murray, really kind of helped me as reading him better understand this process of sanctification and what our lives um, just look like when we are being transformed into Christ's likeness. So I'm going to go over three items that are really going to just walk us through that. One is this, that all sin in the believer is a contradiction to God's holiness. Sin doesn't just change its character as sin because of the person in whom it dwells. Or even if it's the believer who commits it. Now it is true. The believer sustains a new relationship with God. There is no judicial condemnation for him. And that judicial wrath of God does not rest upon his head. God is their father. And they are God's children. That The Holy Spirit dwells in them and is their advocate. But if we are honest, we can really feel the tension of what James is saying when he says that uh, these things that we say with our mouth ought not be so. We should not be in a place where we just take for granted and be content with that status quo or to indulge sin, or, or turn the grace of God into some lasciviousness. James is rightfully calling on his brothers and sisters in Christ to point them to the Word, and to put off the world, to remember that all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the slander that comes out of the tongue, is not of the Father, but it's of the world. We instead should receive with meekness, as James says, the implanted word, which is able to save our souls. Secondly, the presence of sin in the believer involves conflict in the heart and life of that person. If there is remaining and indwelling sin, there will be conflict Paul does a great job describing this in Romans 7. And it's futile to argue that this conflict is not normal. If there is still sin to any degree in one who is indwelled by the Holy Spirit, then there is a tension in the heart of that person. But the deeper their apprehension of the majesty of God, the greater the intensity of their love for God, then their conscience will understand the gravity of that sin which remains, and they will grow to hate that. The more closer you come to the holiest of all, the more you apprehend your sinfulness. And you can join Paul in saying, as he says in Romans 7, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
Thirdly, we must be steadfast in knowing that although sin remains, it does not have mastery over us. It does not define us. There's a total difference between surviving sin and reigning sin. The, the believer in conflict with sin and the unbeliever complacent with sin. It's one thing for sin to live in us and it's another for us to live in sin. It's one thing for the enemy to occupy the capital and it's another for the defeated host to harass the, the garrisons of the kingdom. You must know that sin does not have dominion over you. Redeeming, regenerative, and sanctifying grace have been given freely to you. Christ reigns in you. You must reckon yourself dead to sin, but alive to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The crux of this whole message is based on taming the tongue because we, as new creations, were bought with a price and are therefore holy and righteous and set apart as ambassadors and beacons of God's light for the world to see. James' letter is not a call to moralize us. Rather, it's a clarion call. It's a clarion call to believers to say, Hey, you! You are a redeemed new creation, so your tongue should not be used for sin because that is not who you are anymore. You are an adopted child of the God, so use your tongue for Him, for love, for edifying people, for encouraging people according to Scripture. This is why I said in, in the beginning that this is a message of, of hope, not of, of judgment or guilt. We can be different because we are different. We can tame the tongue because the same power that raised Christ from the graves dwells in each and every one of us who is born again. Therefore, though, still, uh, though, though sin still remains, it's not your master or name. So live out your new empowered righteousness and tame the tongue through Christ. We know those words, those, those stupid words that always get me in trouble. God will use that. <clears throat> we see all over in James that trials are our primary means of sanctification. He's growing us by having us understanding our sin, by deepening our faith and our trust in him, by purifying our hope, by redirecting it from the temporary to the eternal, and by exposing our fleshly desires that when conceived give birth to sin. We should echo his introduction where he says this, he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. When our words indicate that our heart is unhealthy, we should run to the word. We should hear the word and receive it because when we do, we are blessed. 
the solution to speech that glorifies God and, and blesses others is to stand in the gospel, to be reminded of God's character and promises of his great salvation and of who he says you are. When we forget that, we lash out, we slander, we speak poorly. We need God desperately, daily, hourly, all the time. Amen to that? Amen. Let's, uh, let's close in prayer. <clears throat> Lord, we just uh, are thankful for your redeeming love, your, your sacrifice, your direction in our life. We praise you for um, that gift of sanctification. Sometimes that, that gift is a, a tough one. It brings tension to us. But Lord, we praise you that through that, we can become more conformed to your Son and praise you through that. So Lord, thank you for adopting us, for renewing us, for giving us a new identity, not one of, of uh, someone who's slanderous and, and, and of ill speech, but one that can uh, sing praises to you um, forever. So Lord, we just give you thanks and praise, and uh, we give you all the glory. In your name we pray. Amen.